Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number one, Daniel Capra, Electronically Stored Information and the Ancient Documents Exception. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Dan Capra. Dan is the Reed Professor of Law at Fordham Law School and has served as a reporter to the Judicial Conference Advisory Committee on Evidence Rules since 1996. He has made scholarly contributions throughout the field of evidence, as well as in areas of procedure and professional responsibility. Dan's article is entitled, Electronically Stored Information and the Ancient Documents Exception to the Hearsay Rule. It was recently published in the Yale Journal of Law and Technology, and as its name implies, it covers the ancient documents exception, the subject of a recently proposed rule change to the federal rules of evidence. In the article, Dan covers the history of the ancient documents exception, the threat of abuse posed by electronically stored information, or as he abbreviates it, ESI, the proposed rule change, and possible alternatives. Dan, thanks for agreeing to come on Excited Utterance. It's great to have you. Thanks, Ed. Good to be here, and thanks for inviting me. So before we begin our discussion of your article, which focuses on a particular rule, I wanted to ask you more about your time as reporter on the advisory committee. How has serving on the committee changed your view of the rules of evidence, and in particular, your view of the ancient documents rule? So I celebrated my 20th year as the reporter to the advisory committee this year, and it's been an incredible learning experience to figure out how rules get drafted. The predominant goal is not intellectual, it's not academic, it's what's workable, and a lot of times that is a conflict in terms of something that might be theoretically not pure needs to be implemented in order to get something done. So there's a number of amendments in the past that if one were writing them from a clean slate, they would have been written completely differently, but you have to deal with constituencies like the Justice Department, the courts, administrability, jury understanding, and the like, which basically requires a series of compromises. So it's the old idea that you never want to eat the bread that you see get made. It's not perfect, but it's a wonderful process with a lot of brilliant people in it, and I guess I would say it's given me an overview of how the rules are to operate most effectively that's been pretty unique, I'd have to say. And in terms of the ancient documents exception, that definitely became a learning experience, as I guess we'll talk about throughout today, in terms of you know, what is theoretically correct and what is practically doable. So we can talk about that as we go. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that. Your article raises some questions about the ancient documents exception. What exactly are the problems with the exception? The problem that I saw was that the ancient documents exception, 803.16 of the Federal Rules of Evidence, that's one rule. There is a different rule, that is the authenticity rule. So what the original advisory committee did was essentially equate authenticity, that is to say it's 20 years old, it's in a place where you would think it would be, that means it's authentic, or can be authenticated in any other way, and the idea that statements in the documents would be admissible for their truth. But there's no justification simply because a document is authentic for it to be admissible under a hearsay exception. I mean, if that were true, you'd only have Rule 901 of the Federal Rules of Evidence. You wouldn't have any hearsay exceptions at all. So why is this rule one which should equate authenticity with admissibility under the hearsay exception when no other hearsay exception is based on that? Now, the advisory committee, the original advisory committee said, well, you know, because it's 20 years old, 
it probably lacks any litigation motivation. But if you think that through, that's really probably not true in a number of cases because a party preparing a document at a particular time might be preparing it for a litigation motive not specific to one litigation, but to many litigations in the future. Or because of the rules of relevance and Rule 404B and the like, maybe preparing a document without a litigation motive, but with no guarantees of reliability whatsoever, and yet it can be relevant way, way down the line. This problem was acceptable, though, as just a theoretical problem, but because of the rise of electronically stored information, various constituents in the Judicial Conference thought that it would be useful to consider that the possibility that the ancient documents exception should be visited in terms of whether it should be amended, abrogated, or whatever, as we'll talk about, but the ESI problem is the motivating factor. Give me a sense of how big the ESI problem, the electronically stored information problem, is. So if you continue to have the ancient documents exception and you have this growth of electronically stored information, what's the parade of horribles here? Okay, so the parade of horribles is that electronically stored documents can be stored virtually without cost. You could set up your email account to have archiving at a very limited expense. And I actually know people who have emails from 1995, 1996 sitting in their archive that can be retrieved with a click of a button. So because there is no substantial cost for storage, and because, obviously, we all know there's been an explosion of information on the Internet, all web pages, books that have been, and articles that have been electronically stored now, the possibility is that a lot of that is not going to be reliable because it was just made in just the ordinary course of life, like other statements that are made that are potentially unreliable, yet easily retrievable and admissible automatically for the truth of an asserted statement simply because it's been stored for more than 20 years. I guess one could argue, and it has been argued in the advisory committee, that with respect to hard copy, if it's been around for 20 years, there's probably some importance to it. But if it's stored in a server for 20 years, that doesn't mean it's important at all. Is the concern then the theoretical piece that you started with, that it was improperly linked to the authenticity rules? Or is the concern about this changed circumstance that you have the electronically stored information? That's a good question. As it went through the advisory committee, I write the memos that the advisory committee considers on this rule. And I started off with, as I do in the Yale technology piece, talking about the fact that the exception is theoretically unsound, but that it's a livable exception if it were infrequently used to old hard copy cases. And if you look through reported decisions, it hasn't been used very often, but we have to worry about ESI. But the advisory committee, when they considered my report, as what Judge Sutton, who's the chair of the Standing Committee, said is, I was just too successful by half. I was just say, I convinced them that the exception was a bad one. So it went beyond an ESI concern. The committee, I remember the meeting, the committee basically said, if the exception is wrong, the exception is wrong, and we should get rid of the exception. That was the initial proposal that was proposed for public comment last August. Do you think that there's been something of a change in philosophy on the committee. So this seems very proactive on the part of the committee to say, either from a theoretical standpoint, you know, this is not a very good rule, we should change it, or, well, we're worried about problems in the future and we're not going to wait for common law or judges to create exceptions or judges to balk at the exception. We're gonna get ahead of the curve. Right, so if you don't change the rule, there's nothing for a court to do. A court cannot do anything with this. They can't say, I'm not going to apply it. I mean, it applies. And there are a number of situations in which courts 
sought to exclude unreliable ancient documents and were reversed by the appellate court, finding that they have no discretion to exclude them. Once they're generated and they're over 20 years old and they're an authentic document, the court's hands are tied. So if you consider, well, maybe courts will reject it, that's just not possible. I mean, even the Supreme Court couldn't reject Rule 803.16 in a case. So the only way it can be done is through some kind of rulemaking or direct action by Congress. So basically what you've got here is this is a deal we made when we made the federal rules, which is that we do now have to be proactive about the rules. Well, about that particular rule, you do. If there's some issue about a rule that could be interpreted one way or another, then it's off the case that you'll wait for court development. This is just going to be there and it can't be changed. I think that added to the sense of urgency is somewhat the wrong word when it comes to the rulemaking process, but that added to the committee's resolve to get rid of the exception. Let's get into a few more specifics about your proposal. So let's concede the point about reliability. Ancient documents, at least in the electronic context, are not all that reliable. One counter-argument is to suggest that the ancient documents exception is really about necessity. So in other words, when you have documents of a certain age, whether they're electronic or otherwise, it's highly unlikely that you have better live witnesses, and therefore we should just allow this kind of hearsay evidence in. Why is that not enough to satisfy the exception? And here I'm not saying, well, as a matter of hearsay theory and necessity and reliability, but just as a practical matter. Well, necessity, I think, does animate the exception as it exists. But to go back to the ESI point, if you consider all the ESI that's out there, the way I looked at it is there's all the CSI that's going to be out there. Some of it's going to be reliable. Much of it probably is going to be unreliable. I couldn't put a percentage on that right now. But just thinking about it, there's a lot of reliable information, unreliable information, right? So what's going to stop a party 20 years down the line from just introducing the unreliable information when all this other reliable information could also be introduced under some other hearsay exception? And so my proposal, and the one that I actually personally did favor in the Yale piece, is to impose a specific necessity exception one that you get from the residual exception. So you'd have to show that it's more probative than any other evidence reasonably available. And my thought there was that would take care of the ESI problem. It would leave the rule for situations like exist today, where the only document to prove that something about asbestos is this document sitting in a file somewhere. That was the idea. Let's do some armchair psychology for a minute. This is very dangerous among evidence people. Is there any reason why we need to have the rules or the judge screen the more reliable ESI from the less reliable ESI, which is effectively what this is doing? Can't the jury understand that the electronic version of the National Enquirer, as I think you do use as an example, the National Enquirer is not as reliable as the electronic version of the New York Times? I wonder how to answer this question in light of just, for example, the political climate these days. <laughs> if you consider jurors, take 12 jurors from people like in England on the Brexit thing where they get all this information and they can't sort through the information and then they make the wrong decision and they want to do it over again. Can we really rely on just ordinary people these days to take the wheat from the chaff and to figure it out? I'm a traditionalist. There are many, you know, Roger Park, Richard Friedman, who will say, well, I will just let the jury decide. This is all unnecessary formalism. I think if you talk to judges, they don't think that way. They definitely do not think that way. And certainly, nobody in the rulemaking process thinks that way. So I guess that would be my answer. I would leave it at that. A healthy suspicion of what juries would do with the hearsay issue. And you know, if you go into these long balancing things about, well, 
you balance it based on whether a particular juror could understand this or not, then you're back to 72-factor tests that can't be applied predictably. And what we want to do is have something predictable. There's one other issue about the specifics or the specifics of ESI I wanted to talk to you about. You talk about how, given that it's very inexpensive to store all of this information, we're going to have more reliable and less reliable material out there. And this is the whole point we're trying to separate wheat from chaff. The article, though, does acknowledge the somewhat Orwellian-sounding document retention policy. A lot of the really good stuff is going to be deleted, no matter what the ancient document rule says. What do we expect the landscape, and here I'm not even talking about rules per se, I'm just talking about from a practical sense, what kind of evidence do you see being predominant in future litigation? We're going to have a lot of electronic stuff. A lot of it's going to be weeded out because of these retention policies. And then you also have a lot of garbage out there, with the Facebook and Twitter stuff. Yeah, that is an issue. And this was talked about, by the way, with respect to the Civil Rules Committee and their recent discovery amendments. This might be a passing thing. We don't know what's going to happen in the future, but it seems like the idea that all the good stuff's going to be deleted probably is not going to occur for just any number of reasons, but one is because of the expenses of retrieval will be reduced as well. That's my thought, which means I think there's going to be just a whole lot of information to choose from, which is one of the concerns that the advisory committee was considering. Let's move to reform. You explore several reform options in your article. Can you tell us a little bit about those options before we get into what you like and what the advisory committee? The option of, well, why not just limit the rule to hard copy, for example, so that you would just write it in the rule, it just doesn't cover ESI. The advisory committee considered that, found it not workable because, for example, hard copy gets digitized. Electronic information is not actually even introduced electronically in the court. It's scanned and the like. So it would be just too hard a line to draw, and I think courts would have a lot of difficulty with it. So that was one possibility. Another possibility that was considered by the advisory committee, and I talk about it briefly in the article, is, well, how about adding a reliability component? If you add a reliability component, though, you're coming so close to the residual exception that it didn't seem to be very workable. Then there's another possibility which was taken from the recent amendments in 2013 to the business records exception and the public records exception to shift the burden of showing unreliability to the opponent of the evidence. That's a viable possibility, I think. But the concern was that the opponent of the evidence, because the documents are so old and they're usually not in any states to be argued about, would find it very difficult to argue that they're unreliable. How do you bring up a case on unreliability? I guess my answer to that was, well, that's better than having them completely admissible. The opponents shouldn't be so, so upset. It's at least giving them some opportunity to exclude it. But the advisory committee thought that that was not going to be a workable thing. And here's the final thing. A lot of the arguments in my article now is added to it is this whole public comment process which was given. And it seems like when you add any of those possibilities, a reliability possibility, shifting the burden of reliability, what you're adding is expense. The big concern from the public comment on this rule is we don't want to have any greater expense in trying to qualify or not qualify these documents. That's, I think, why those alternatives, they don't really withstand the substantial scrutiny that the advisory committee gave it. And that wasn't the proposal that you favored. As you suggested earlier, you favored adding necessity. That one, by the way, is a good one. And the reason for that is if it's all about necessity, it should be easy to prove it. Public comment to the advisory committee was, well, I'm not going to be able to bring this case unless I can introduce this document. Well, then say that. And 
show how there isn't anything else that you found after a year of discovery. This is the document you found. That shouldn't take too long. You don't have to prove it's reliable. You just have to prove it's necessary. Can't explain why that did not work in the advisory committee. And we were talking about this offline. So not only did the committee not take your necessity requirement, but in fact, the proposed rule was to eliminate the exception entirely. And that actually also changed some more. So tell us a little bit more about that. Well, that was the real learning process. The committee thought, and I basically agreed with this, that yeah, since the ancient documents exception is so infrequently used, we're gonna get much pushback about that proposal. Just not much will happen. But committee got well over 200 comments, which was a record in my tenure. Even when we did the 702 stuff in the late 90s, about that many comments. One of the things that you would note with the comments, though, and that has changed about the comments, is now instead of having to write a letter, all you have to do is click on the website. And so a lot of, a lot of the comments were quick. A lot of the comments were exactly the same as somebody else's comments. But they were serious comments and very emotional. And it turns out that the ancient documents exception is used with some frequency that you wouldn't see from just looking at the reported decisions. And in retrospect, this is my failing, because why would it be found in a purported decision? There's nothing to object about. Nobody would write an opinion about an ancient documents exception because if it's 20 years old, it's automatically admissible. So who would write an opinion saying, well, I question the ancient documents exception or something like that, right? Anyway, there were a number of, kind of as you might surmise, categories of litigation in which ancient documents exception, at least according to the public comment, were critical. Latent diseases cases, let's see, environmental cases, quiet title actions, insurance actions, and the cases in which children were abused by clergy, cases brought against the church. Those were the ones that came up most often. Interestingly enough, as to that latter action, the plaintiffs said, we need the ancient documents exception, and the defendants said, we need the ancient documents exception. The reason they needed it is because they had to find the insurance policy that covered the action, and they couldn't find the insurance policy, and so on and so forth. So I figured if we have upset both sides of that litigation, there's something to, to reconsider. Eight United States senators sent a letter in saying that what this ends up doing is making cases unprovable that are federal causes of action and this is a substantive action and so on and so forth. So it was really quite a dramatic response, I have to say. But all of the cases that they were talking about were from the 60s, from the 70s, from the 80s, and you know, they found this document laying in an old file. That brought the committee back at substantial discussion to the ESI part of it. Then the question was, well, what to do about that? Because maybe they're right, they need that exception for their cases, but how are we gonna deal with the ESI going forward? And one of the problems of rulemaking in electronic areas is the rulemaking process takes three years. If you hold it off for a year, that's a bunch of electronic documents that are going to get in, and to try and keep up with the times, you have to kind of be ahead of the times. So the committee, I guess you would say compromised, and going back to the ESI part of it, changed the proposal to essentially grandfather the old cases. So now, under the proposal that is now going to the Judicial Conference in September and then to the Supreme Court, the ancient documents exception essentially stops applicability for any document after 1998. Anything before 1998, admissible under the ancient documents exception if it's authenticated. Anything after 1998 can't be admitted under the ancient documents exception. And then you have to think about what about a document that was created before 1998 and then altered after 1998, and there's something in the advisory committee to deal with that. The alteration would not be covered. The initial entry would be covered. This all sounds like a reasonable compromise given the concerns that were raised. Of course, there's no one speaking up for future cases involving latent diseases or whatever other kinds of scandals we might have. Those are the very cases 
in which there's going to be a lot of electronic data. Like in 1960, there wasn't a lot of electronic data there, and so there's just a document sitting in a warehouse, or there's just a complaint about abuse sitting in a file. The hope is, now there's going to be more electronic data that's going to be useful out there that can be admitted under other exceptions. Yes, and I think that's the trick, of course, is that yeah. we assume that for some reason those pieces will come in under, say, the business record exception or whatever it happens to be. So I guess it will remain to be seen. The initial proposal, the advisory committee notes said, well, if it's reliable, you can always admit this under 8036 or 807. And there was a lot of pushback on that. 8036 would be hard because with the old documents anyway, to find a custodian is very hard to do. I don't think that's going to be true going forward. I think you're going to have custodians who have general knowledge about the computerized record keeping process that you can qualify. And then what about 807? Well, you know, 807 is so iffy, it's so exclusionary, et cetera. If this new committee you know, puts in the idea that there's no attempt to say that because we're grandfathering it, that ancient documents are as a class unreliable. We anticipate that the residual exception can be used. And just as a final point, committee is considering amendments to the residual exception to make it more useful. So hopefully this works. That's all I can say. <laughs> Last question before we wrap this up. Is there any other work to be done in this space, given that there's already a proposed change? And more broadly, are there other rules that need rethinking in light of the fact that we have electronic information out there? Okay, that's a good question. The advisor committee has already proposed ways to ease authentication of ESI. And part of the reason for that is having to authenticate these fairly straightforward electronic files and the like, copies of a hard drive or whatever it might be, by way of introducing it through in-court testimony. It's the same kind of problem that we saw back in 2000 about business records. And so what's happened, and this proposal is coming along with in the same kind of package as the ancient documents proposal, to allow these authentications to occur by way of certificates. So that's one thing to think about, about ways to ease the burdens of authentication. I think a lot can be done, and there's an article by Jeff Bellin about judicial notice of this information, and I think that's going to be very useful in the future in terms of dealing with ESI. And then another shout out to Bellin about, is there something that we need in hearsay to deal with all the ESI that's out there, to maybe expand hearsay exceptions to cover it all? The advisory committee has actually considered that, and I think rightly has been very cautious about expanding hearsay exceptions to cover ESI. One of the problems being, how do you figure out its contemporaneity? How do you figure out whether the person who's talking off of Facebook is proceeding with personal knowledge? All sorts of difficulties. And then there's these new studies that FJC has done, indicating that, and social science studies indicating that it's easier to lie if you're doing so without talking to the person face to face. These are all things to worry about in terms of expanding the exception. There are other possibilities now that more statements are being recorded. One of the things the advisory committee is thinking about at my urging is to expand Rule 801 D1A to allow for more substantive admissibility of recorded statements on the grounds that since they're recorded, they shouldn't have the problem Congress had at the time. So there's various things happening, just trying to stay on top of it. Dan, thanks so much for being on the show and for your great work with the advisory committee. I'm going to really enjoy teaching this material when I talk about the uh, ancient documents exception in class this fall. I would just like to say I'd thank you very much. And anybody who has any kind of idea that they have to amend the rules or think that there's a problem, please email me or send it to me. We, I always write them up. We always send them to the committee. I just got one from Roger Park a couple months ago. I got one from Ron Carlson. So please do. That's very useful to have that kind of input. 
One of the most appealing aspects of Dan's work is that it provides that elusive but powerful blend of theory and practice. As we discussed, for him, the ancient documents exception not only is theoretically unsound, but also poses a significant threat to adjudication in practice because of the prevalence of electronically stored information. By constructing strong arguments on the theoretical and practical levels, Dan was able to get traction among members of the advisory committee and thus institute meaningful change. As my question suggested, I remain skeptical about whether the advisory committee has chosen the best path. Dan's original proposal of instituting a necessity requirement seems far more closely tailored to the strengths and weaknesses of the ancient documents exception than the rather clunky abolition plus grandfathering that characterizes the currently proposed rule. To me, the abolition is overbroad in sealing off old documents when we need them. At the same time, the grandfathering, while understandable, seems driven by special interest, unnecessarily privileging only existing litigation interests. We will just have to see what happens as things evolve. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. Research assistance for this episode was provided by Alex Nunn. Production assistance was provided by Carson Smith. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.